0: You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. How are we doing? No one wanted to be in the spit zone, huh? That's okay. No worries. Um, well, hey, yeah, it's, the weather is awesome. Thanks for not ditching this for the beach or something. <laughs> Uh, but it's okay. If you did, you know, it's okay. Praise the Lord. Um, well, it's good to see you guys. So we're in uh, week three of 1 John. Again, I just don't want to get tired of saying this, but I just, I really hope that this is not the most 1 John that we as a community do in a week. I hope we are all just like marinated it. I would love it if halfway through these sermons, like you guys are like, no, I got it. Like I, I, I'm thinking the same thing and you can come up here and you could probably do a lot better um, but yeah, I just really want to encourage like what, let's just be marinating in first John. and second and third they're just super short but um, this is just su- such good, rich pastoral uh, word of God that just is something we need to constantly remind ourselves. but uh, the last two weeks we've just gotten into John's letter. you know again, John, just to recap, he's uh, he's most likely John, the disciple of Jesus, but there's still technically a debate on the authorship. Just so we can all be aware of that. Uh, but most likely, there's so many similarities. So even if he's not, he's just a John that knows John's gospel like he's like memorized it, um, and he's writing to the early church. He's writing from this place of Ephesus, we'll talk about it in a second, but he's writing from there to the early church, uh, house churches, also the greater sea church in all of Asia Minor, and then subsequently the world, and then because it's God's word to us today. What he is trying to do, John is writing to bolster Christian's faith, okay? Makes sense, simple. He wants to encourage people in their walk with Christ, but he's also, also rebuking and refuting some of the false teachings that are happening in the early church about who Jesus was in the flesh. Now remember Ephesus, he's not writing specifically to Ephesus, but from Ephesus. Ephesus was a hotbed for cultish worship, specifically of the Greek goddess Artemis. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And the fleshly practices that go with that. So that is kind of the influence, the culture he's in as he's writing to the church. Um, So he's been encouraging Christians everywhere, as we saw in 1 John 1, 7, to walk in the light as he is in the light and to flee from darkness. And you might say, if you read this, you might say, you know, these false teachings of the day, I get their false teachings, but they don't seem like darkness, right? They just seem like these people are trying to make sense of what it means to follow God, right? Remember, this was the beginning of what was known as Gnosticism. So these Gnostics are just saying that it's knowledge that is key. That the flesh doesn't matter, but knowledge about God is what sets one apart for a higher purpose. That's all they're trying to figure out and say, right? But John in his letter is trying to make clear that knowledge about God and actually knowing God are two different things. right? This is a huge factor in today's society, right? About having knowledge about something, especially with our access to to knowledge and news and what could be fact or not fact, uh, right? There's a couple of examples of this, right? Dating apps, okay? Dating apps, you can know a profile of someone, right? You can know all about them, what they look like, what they say they're into, all this kind of stuff, and then you show up on the date, <laughs> and if you're at experience, it might be a little bit different than that. It's a different story. Let's take swimming, for example, right? You can know the mechanics of swimming, you, you move your arms or you just watch a dog do it and you just flap a bunch or whatever you do, right? And then you get thrown into the deep end. Knowledge might not get you everywhere you want to go, right? Or kids, okay? This is an example. We all have knowledge of what good behavior looks like, right? And then you show up to my house and it's a different story, right? Just kidding. I love my kids most, most of the time. But knowledge, of course, has power, right? Knowledge has power. But the point is there's a difference between knowledge about something and really knowing something. Okay, Knowledge about God but not actually knowing him would make God just like any other deity of the day. You have knowledge about this deity and you become a worshiper based on your knowledge of this deity. But John has been writing this encouraging letter to early Christians, reminding them not only of a God who they can know, but that this God was actually made manifest to them. That this God, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 1, if you remember, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. This God has fellowship with us, and now we have fellowship with him and then each other, right? This God is not just this passive belief system, the one who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This God is a God we know because he made himself known to us. But there's still a transition to make, right? The Gnostics were teaching knowledge about God with no action necessary. Okay, the flesh, whatever you did action-wise, did not matter. Knowledge of God, no action necessary. John is writing to Christians that they should be full of good works because of their knowledge of God. True knowledge of God should compel his people towards action. And today, John is going to teach us three aspects of what right action looks like when someone truly knows God. This action will be the evidence of the knowing of God. So let's get into it. Verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. I don't think it gets more (laughs) clear than that, right? I kind of shortened it just for whatever. So I said number one is keep his words or keep his word. Okay? Keep his commandments. Remember, this letter is primarily written to Jews who believed in Jesus. So when they hear commandments, there's a rich history for the Jewish people of commandments. Of course, they could go to the commandments of Exodus, right? We could all do that. But what would probably first enter their mind would be the great Shema, of what was then called the greatest commandment, okay? So for an extremely, extremely long time, and it still goes on today for practicing Jews, In morning and evening, the Jewish people would have said these words as a way of expressing gratitude and devotion to God. This is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Okay, beautiful, beautiful verse, right? This is the great Shema. But there's an incredible uniqueness Okay, the the reason we get Shema, because Shema, this Hebrew word, is the first word, hear, and it really means listen with your ears. Really hear this. Okay, but listening, if you just trace that, you should go do this on your own time. Listening throughout the scriptures, when pertaining to God's instructions, always also then have a subsequent doing action to it. In fact, there was not a separate word for obey in the Hebrew language, so the assumption is if you hear or listen to whoever has the authority to speak, then you obey that instruction as well. It's all one word. So you see this in the very next line, based on your great oneness, O Lord, we will love you with all our heart, soul, and might. So a huge aspect of hearing instructions or commandments, especially from God, are to shema, to listen and obey. This is like bred into the Jewish culture. It's all-encompassing. It's not enough to just hear the commandments and have knowledge about them, but you hear it and you obey it. So this would be routine for John's listeners to connect listening with obeying, which is actually a crucial aspect for us to get as well, because the commandments were never meant to apply to just one aspect of the self. Right. They were there to represent what it meant to be made new in heart, soul, and might, which is another way to say everything about you. But with all the other commandments that were once written on the tablets of stone to be heard, understood, and carried out, but now on this side of the cross, and I just can't get enough of quoting Jeremiah 31, on this side of the cross, God's great plan, spoken through Jeremiah so long ago, is being played out. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three. For this is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Not just on stone tablets as instructions to follow, but literally on their hearts, on our hearts as a way of being, of living, of doing, and listening. So keeping the commandments made through these promises of God are a way to know God. This is how we become not just a saved people, but God's people, because his law is now within us, written on our very hearts. Now, back to our passage in 1 John. If God's people are to keep his commandments, there is a, there's, a, I think, an interesting definition we need to make of keep, okay? Now, stay with me. For us, keep usually means to have possession of or retaining something in a certain state, you want to keep something the way it is, or my favorite definition, a castle, okay? Now, once again, I do think understanding a bit of the original language will help us understand the deeper meaning of this phrase, okay? So say with me, in Hebrew, the word for keep, I'm not going to butcher it, you can go look it up, is actually a shepherding word, okay? It means to guard or protect, okay? Keep means guard or protect. Similar to the Greek, the Greek would mean more of watch, over, or again, to protect. So the thing I love about the Hebrew language, the Greek language has, like English, has a lot of just definition, right? We just define things. The Hebrew language, you define things by a short story, and I love that. So here's the short story for the definition of what it means to keep, to watch over, protect, or guard. It's from the idea of a shepherd is out with his flock in the wilderness, okay? His following is with his flock then at nighttime, he has to keep the flock safe. So what they would do is shepherds would go and they'd find a bush or they'd find a bunch of um, uh, twigs or whatever, and ideally it'd be thorny, right? And they'd make a corral basically for their sheep. So they would make this makeshift corral in the wilderness that not only would keep the sheep together all as one, but they would also create a way to protect them from anything from the outside. So that was like, that's the definition of, in the Hebrew language, for what it means to keep, this this protection, keeping them safe in the fold. So for the original language, keeping the word is not just something to do or to have, but something to watch over, to guard and protect fiercely. Okay. So in the original languages, keeping his commandments is not just do what he says. It means to deeply and fiercely guard these words with your very life, since it's written on your heart right, preserve them by continuing to follow in their instruction, protecting them from being altered, from being fought against, or from being forgotten. So far, we have this evidence of knowing God and keeping his word, which means listening and obeying his commandments, as if we were guarding something with our very lives. John argues this point further, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him, okay, This may seem harsh but it's more just like simple logic right if you know god you'll keep his commandments if you don't keep his commandments you don't know god verse 5 but whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of god is perfected there's something that happens when we fiercely guard and preserve god's word in our lives we don't just live out these perfect lives because now we're following all the rules but we start to experience in us what the commandments were meant to do all along, and that's to reveal the love of God. Right? It's a classic example, but typically, typically, in general, parents don't give their kids rules of life or guidance because they don't like their kids. Right? <laughs> typically, it's more likely because they actually love their children and want the best for them. Okay? The commandments were always from a loving father, And we're supposed to be received in love and carried out in love. So keeping his word is knowing God. And knowing God allows his love to be made perfect in us. This is really important theology. It might sound really basic. This is really important theology. Remember the Gnostics who are plaguing the church with their heresy teach that you just need to know about God and his laws and as long as you have understanding of a higher power, then you are enlightened and you're saved above others. They taught flesh is meaningless and weak, but true relationship and love with God is based on your knowledge of him. So let's go to Jesus. What does Jesus say about this? John 14, verse 15. Jesus says to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Interesting, <laughs> okay? Okay. Skip to verse 21 of chapter 14. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Sounds a lot like First John, right? But then verse 22. So Judas, not Iscariot, the other Judas, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? Okay, good question, right? So what is going to separate our relationship with you and the world. How are we going to know? Verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Right? Jeremiah 31, it's right back to it. This is the evidence of it. We will make our home with him who keeps my word. But now that keeping of God's word must turn into action. In fact, fact, Paul writes later in Titus, a more direct way of talking of false teachers who are teaching and believing these myths about God. This is Titus 1.16. He says, They profess to know God, but they actually deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. James had an example of this knowledge about what is good, but with no action taken. And here's his example, James 2.15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? <laughs> I love that, right? The works of a believer are the evidence of the manifestation of Jesus in their lives. All right, theologians call this the doctrine of the proofs in the pudding. They don't do that. <laughs> which brings us to the next point of what it looks like to truly know God. Okay, this is verses five, the end of verse five into six. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So I put again in the simple terms number two, keep his ways. This is good action of what it looks like to really know god keep his ways jesus back to john 14 once said to his followers verse 12 truly truly i say to you whoever believes in me will also do the works that i do and greater works than these will he do because i am going to the father okay so knowing god is keeping his word which should always lead us to keeping his ways okay Now, if you were approached on the street by someone and they walked up to you and they said, will you tell me what the way of Jesus is? What would you say? What is the way of Jesus? Right, it gets confusing, right? Because Jesus, well, we know he stands for love, but then the way of love can be defined and redefined based on every generation and culture of what we think that means. But Jesus actually modeled his way many times throughout the Gospels. But besides the cross, I think they're a few times more powerful than what we find in John 13. Everyone in this room has probably heard this story, but when we're faced with defining the way of Jesus, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better way to express his great love and purpose for his people. Okay, so you all know this. This is the washing of the disciples' feet, right? But let me paint the picture. Jesus, God, made manifest to the world. God in spirit and the flesh. He knows he's about to be betrayed. Jesus knows his death is inevitable. So he gathers his closest friends together. Jesus, who has all the rights to full heavenly authority, came down to earth as a servant, and he wants to experientially teach his followers what it meant to follow in his likeness, to keep his ways. So he gets up from the table, he wraps a towel around him, He gets on his hands and knees in front of his friends and starts to wash their feet. Okay, again, most of us have heard this story. But again, this is so significant because this action was usually only done by the lowest servant class in the household. Never by the guest of honor and for sure never by your rabbi. So let me read John 13 and let's just sit in the magnitude of Jesus showing his way here. John 13, verse 5. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He said to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said, well, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet and is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said, do you understand what I have done to you? Then a little bit later, Jesus cements this, not just as a really cool moment, but as an actual way to live life. John 13, 34. And a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Powerful right? You just can't get in that. We cannot get bored with that story. That is powerfully the way of Jesus, right? A Christian mindset should always be how to wash one another's feet. Now, times and culture is different, right? So washing one another's feet isn't necessarily what would mean a lot to someone today, okay? But if you think about the principle of it, no Christian is greater than Christ. None of the church are above serving like Jesus did. So what does washing their feet look like for you in your context, with your friends, with the people around you? What does it look like to serve others, not for gain, but legitimately out of love? And the beautiful thing about this is we don't have to make it up. We, of course, have to contextualize it to our specific lives, but this has been the whole point of the scriptures, revealing God's incredible love for us, so that we may have lives defined by loving God and loving others. We walk in the same way Jesus walked. We keep his ways. In fact, back to 1 John verse 7, he's saying this, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. This is a tale as old as time, Right? Jesus did not throw out the old and speak a new commandment, but rather revealed to his disciples the very heart and fulfillment of the old commandment. The commandments were always meant to steer us towards God's love so that in turn we would love one another, which is exactly what Jesus did. One commentary I read titled this section, The Message Old Yet Current. And I like that a lot. John continues, verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment I am writing to you, Which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This is one of those sections where John's letter kind of gets painted differently than just a Pauline letter, right? He's pastorally circling back to previous thoughts. He's reminding readers about the great story that we've always been in and how Jesus fulfills that. But then also pointing to the newness that Jesus brings in his fulfillment. We've been talking about this great love of God and that we should reflect because it all goes back to being a light in the darkness because in God there is no darkness, which we looked at last week. Darkness is not where God is. In fact, John, the Gospel of John, verse 5, says this brilliantly, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So the light is greater than the darkness. But this light, the darkness is passing away from 1 John, that's a huge line. Not only is the light greater than the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, but the light is getting stronger and bigger, which is driving out the darkness. In fact, anyone in God would not have this darkness in them, right? Due to Christ's intercession and advocacy, which, we, which we, if those sound new to you, we talked about these last week, there is a potential of no darkness in a person, even if that person continues to be in a sinful state, right? And go look at, go listen to that, and look at that intercession and advocacy. It's huge. If that person is in Christ, then their sin is atoned for and taken by Christ Jesus the righteous. Thus, good action would follow this washing and newness of life, and this can't be forced or faked. First 9 of 1 John 2 Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Again, John reminding readers that this light will be evident. And these false teachers who are talking about what is, quote, real about Jesus are doing so in a hateful way against their fellow believers or brothers. Back to washing the feet, it's love for one another that shows the true light, which leads us to a third teaching from John today. This light will be evident by how we love one another. Verse 10 of 1 John 2 Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. And does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes so abiding in the light is loving one another john paints this picture of someone living in darkness being as if they are blind stumbling around but not out of pity for them but because they have chosen the path of hate which leads to darkness hate here is meant to be the stark contrast to love love is the way of the light hate is the way of the darkness. They are not compatible with each other. For those who are considered a part of the early church movement in John's day, who are now false teachers outside of the church community, causing hostility and hate towards those who would continue to think Jesus was fully God and fully human, to those people, John is drawing a line in the sand. Now, the word brother here, it's not like a gender-specific word, but rather it's meant to be fellow-believer. the fellow brothers and sisters, right? To those who say we have the true Christian way and your way is wrong and we hate you because of it, well, that way, by very definition of what it means to follow Jesus, can't be right, right? John is saying this blindness that they have chosen as they walk in darkness is not the way of Christ. Hate is antithetical to love and love is the way of the light. And the evidence of being in the light is loving one another. Let's go back to Jesus. Always a, good, <laughs> always a good idea. John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Right? Now listen. I have experienced resentment before. Okay. I don't know if anyone, anyone in here can experience this, but unchanged anger, right, leading to unresolved bitterness, which results in being in a state of resentment with someone. Okay, it's stuff I work through, am working through, right? Maybe some of you know what I'm talking about, you know what that feels like. And if you feel resentment towards someone, the last thing you want to do is lay your life down for that person. Now, both Jesus and John are not saying the greatest feeling you'll have in the whole world is to lay your life down for someone, right? It's far from what you're going to feel like doing, even if you're on that extreme. But no greater love is there than doing this. And it's interesting that John clarifies for his friends. This isn't just supposed to be translated for only the people you like and who like you, right? Or rather, the practice of laying your life down for your friends will be the evidence of Christ's transforming work in you that then will take you beyond to everyone around you. If you're unwilling to lay your life down for your friends, how do you expect to do those who would be more like an enemy? Or in words we can get in today, if you're unwilling to love a fellow believer, even if their theology might be a tad different, or their practice of church is different than ours, if they truly believe Jesus is the Christ who took away our sins, then we should be able to love them. Again, often this is more of a practice than a feeling, but no less crucial for what it means to follow Jesus. Okay, so let's, let's bring it and kind of land the plane a bit today. We see this all the time, don't we? We all have the same scriptures, and yet there are more than 45,000 Christian denominations in the world. 45,000, right? Because we can't simply agree on certain practices or interpretations. But at the core of the gospel message is this Jesus who is God come to earth to take on the form of a servant to wash the feet of those who would eventually abandon him when things got tough. And instead of throwing up his hands at the stiff-necked generation, he became the ultimate atonement for sins so that anyone who would come after him deny themselves and take up their cross daily to follow him he would give eternal life and the same frail people when he reappeared to them in his resurrection power this is why he could take the same people with their faults and their differences and he would start his great church with them he could take Peter, who denied him three times, and begin a movement now that's coming up on 2,000 years old of preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Right? Regardless of the practices of what this church thing means, we have to lean into John's letter here and see there's no point in faking it for God. Walking in the light and knowing God is, will be evident. Right? For those who abide in the light, there will be a shine that you cannot hide. In fact, Jesus even says of his abiding, John 15, 5, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. That's actually offensive. <laughs> like, really? I could do something. Like, apart from me and my love, you can do nothing. But instead, John fifteen ten. he says, but if you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So First John, in his letter, First John, teaching us today the evidence of truly knowing God are really, really simple. It's right there in the text. Knowing his word, keeping his ways, and loving one another. This is what it means to abide in the light. This is what separates those who are teaching a false gospel to those who are truly living in the light, knowing God. Guys, and this should be encouraging. It's encouraging to me, right? I don't have to fake being a follower of Jesus. It's so hard to fake it. It's actually more work, right? There's actually incredible freedom to know we have a Savior, and it's not us. It's not me. We don't have to pretend we have it all figured out because it's a constant journey but the important thing to end on is that this is not an isolated teaching from the rest of first john we don't need these we don't do these three things to attain our salvation or as the gnostics would preach just know about these things so we are good in our psyche or our spirit we can't say it enough we are saved by christ from darkness into light we don't create the light god is the light And it is in our surrender and trust that Jesus Christ was and is Emmanuel, God with us, that he alone became our sin, becoming the forever atonement for sin and our great advocate when we sin so that we would become the righteous before God. So today there's encouragement and direction to abide in the ever-present, constantly advocating light and love of Jesus by keeping his word, keeping his ways and loving one another. And that can start right now. Whenever we put the respond slide up there, I know it's the same spiel every Sunday, but church, this is what we do together, right? This is what we do. We sing praises to our God. We can start right now by just raising our voices as one voice to our lord we we pray we have this avenue of talking to god praying with one another i would love to pray with you if you'd like that in the back anybody any of our leaders would love that right there's such a beautiful power that happens when we give our finances when we say hey i want to give to the common good so that our little church in the middle of albany can now bless the community that we are centered in that's huge right? That's a huge letting go of these little kingdoms that we grow in our own life, so we can be a restorative presence in our city. And then for us, we just, we've made this conviction and and this move, we will have communion every time we gather, right? We center ourselves around the table, remembering this is all possible because of the greatest love that was ever known, that Christ laid his life down for us. The bread and the cup are just reminders that we need to realize this amazing grace lavished upon us so that that's all we have to give to others is love and grace. And this reflects how he first loved us so that we can now love. So let me pray, let's respond, and just remember in the teaching of John today. Let me pray for us as we go.